0: Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television, join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, did Home Alone ruin John Hughes's career, the greatest movie never made, and how Jackie Chan creates perfection through failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. Originally a painter, Daniel Minahan wasn't a fan of the solitary nature of the art, which led him to documentary filmmaking and then television work. He's best known for working on shows like Six Feet Under, Deadwood, Game of Thrones, House of Cards, and most recently, Halston. The five-episode series stars Ewan McGregor. The story follows a man who leverages his single invented name into a worldwide fashion empire synonymous with luxury, sex, and fame defining an era. In this interview, Minahan talks about exploring museums with cinematographers, limited series versus long-form dramas, difficulties in making period pieces, letting actors inspire camera movements, advice directors should ignore, and how creatives should think about their imprint. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and also look for us on Instagram at Creative Principles.
1: I was a student in art school, a painting major, and I felt I wasn't suited to the solitary nature of that. I like to be around people. I uh, started taking a documentary class, you know, a class in documentary filmmaking, and then I switched majors. And I, I found my way to narrative filmmaking through documentary
0: you see like a natural transition there? Like, did you see painting as maybe leading to storyboarding mentally or something like that? Some kind of natural trans- transgression?
1: Absolutely. I'm a visual person and I have a, a, I don't want to say a photographic memory, but I do mark and recognize and remember things in a, in a really uh, detailed way. Mm-hmm. So I think my training as an artist and especially of uh, art history has really informed my process. I do make drawings. I mean, I make my own storyboards. I I prefer to work with a storyboard artist because my storyboards tend to make people laugh, but I, I always do make some kind of a little thumbnail sketch. And I just think the, the, uh, As, you know, the, the the kind of history of painting really figures into it. One of the things I'd like to do with uh, with cinematographers is walk through a museum together and look at paintings and find things that are relevant. And, and always, you know, uh, a big part of this, because it's based on these real characters and they're so well documented. Uh, we went through lots of photo books and, you know, videos and... Uh, magazines to see how these people presented themselves and what the interiors looked like and how people were photographing that stuff back then so
0: are you creating like a lookbook with that to show other people or is it more of just a dialogue with the cinematographer
1: well just by the nature of this project because i i developed it for so long i had a lot of research materials and then i organized them into chronological order and uh you know I had a, a a little show and tell kind of dog and pony show that I would bring to people I brought it to when I met you right. and I brought it <clears throat> to when I met uh, with different streamers um, I showed it to Ryan like you know there there it was a useful way of communicating mm-hmm. how I saw the show and how it progressed
0: um so yeah that was an important part of it You've worked on a lot of iconic shows, uh, Game of Thrones, um, Marco Polo, Newsroom, True Blood. What made this story or what makes a story today a limited series uh, as opposed to like a longer series? Is it mainly just the the character or how do you kind of see the difference there?
1: It's interesting you say that because we always we originally conceived Halston as a feature and it just did not fit into 90 or even 120 and twenty-minute feature script it's a big story it's an an epic story about someone's career and and uh rise and fall and it moves through time that's part of the story we were telling uh when christine vashon came to me and said you know that book's available again what do you think of doing it as limited series it made perfect sense to me because you could go into detail into each of these eras and really you know, get into the subtlety and the nuance of the creative process. And my idea for it was to reveal the characters through the creative process. Now now that we've finished this as five hours, you know, it feels like we could have done 10 hours and really gone deeper into each of the characters, into Victor Hugo and his failed art career, into Elsa Peretti and her incredible creative process, and to Joe Eula and his history, who was fascinating, World War II uh, fighter in, you know, what became the Green Berets, and uh, they're really interesting characters, but uh, we chose to tell it in
0: five hours, and I'm very happy with it. Tell me a little about that for people less familiar with like getting the the rights to an adaptation. So maybe this is something you tried before and you're like, oh, if that ever comes available again, I've got some ideas for it. How do you think about that in terms of like, I'd like to make that someday if possible? You mean, what was my experience with this as far as the, the uh, yeah, I think think you said the rights became available again. So that means someone else was maybe going to make it. And then, yeah,
1: it was interesting because when we first ran at this, you know, in the late nineties as a feature, there's a lot of interest around it. You know, we had, uh, you know, actors, you know, who pursuing us and, you know, we had, uh, had set it up, I think first at, uh, American playhouse. And then when we really could not crack the script, we let it go. And, that was when you wanted to make a feature out of it? That we was wanted part to of the make period. it a feature, yeah. It came back to us. And then we took another run at it and let it go again. Mm-hmm. Still the same difficulty trying to tell the story. If you just told one aspect of his story, you could tell tell it like eight and a half. And it could be you know one night in Halston's life when he goes to Studio 54 and hits all these parties and ends up in the morning at the workroom. you know. But then you're doing a great disservice to... What's important about this person was just like, you know, his creative process and his effect that he had on, on the culture, let it go again. And then I would have to read in the trades about, you know, oh, so-and-so has the rights to the Halston book and is going to make it and da-da-da with this company. And it would just, you know, kind of kill my soul a little bit. And um, I would put all my research into deep, deep storage and and just sort of moved on. And then it came back to me again. And so, oh, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess the experience is there was something about this story that that felt really important to me and that felt relevant to me. And, and interestingly, over time, it's just become more relevant.
0: Mm-hmm. You know,
1: the idea of someone branding and marketing themselves and losing themselves. And then being stripped of their company and their name is very relevant because I think a lot of people are really
0: aspiring to that right now. Hmm. Do you see it kind of as a, an accumulation of things like one, maybe you're, you're, you're growing as a director, so you saw a slightly different version of the story, but also there's more streamers that could buy it there used to not be quite so many limited series as there are today. It just wasn't really a market for it. Do you kind of see that all coming together?
1: Yeah, it was a bit of a perfect storm of uh, the culture, you know, of this story. You know, the, the world was ready to hear the story. There were more venues available to it, you know, to to stream it. Uh, you know, Ryan Murphy had come into command of his company and, you know, he recognized it when a lot of other people didn't. People were fascinated by it and they loved meeting you in, And we left the room and we thought, OK, that was a great meeting, and then it just kind of was lingering there, and and uh, until until Ryan called me up and said, "I heard you out with this story. Don't give it to anybody else. We <laughs> should do this together."
0: How difficult have you found it, like pitching over the years? I've heard. I just spoke with the creator of um, The Godfather of Harlem, and he said, "We're in the room. Forest Whitaker's with us, and it's still not. It's still hard to pitch." Do you <laughs> find the same thing with bringing you into different places?
1: Yeah. I mean, everyone was thrilled to meet you and, and he really was a, a real, uh, team player and did his part. We all had our part. It was a little bit of a dog and pony show, but, you know, I can't, I can't, uh, speak for the executives that we met, you know, I don't know what it was cause I thought we were genius, but, you know, I don't know what it was that, uh, didn't allow them to commit whether it was just fear of the material that maybe the material didn't have legs to stand you know for for five or six hours maybe it was the expense of it it's a big period show and about luxury and excess and the creation of a world he Halston literally creates a world and we needed to do that you know it was a big commitment let's say so yeah, it's not easy. I mean, I'm, I'm developing some other things now. We'll see if it's, any, if it's any easier now that, you know, people have really seen what I can do. Unfortunately, the, the other things that I'm developing are also period pieces, which is um, not an easy
0: road. <laughs> Tell me a little about, um, did any parts of your background work their way into this? You said you walked through a museum, so I imagine you captured some of the look there. But as far as your history, like American Crime Story or something, what kind of pieces from your personal history as a filmmaker kind of came to this new project?
1: It's interesting. I'm, I'm glad I didn't get to make this 20 years ago because I think I was a different filmmaker then. I think I have much more experience. Um, I've lived the story, you know, as a creative person working in a corporate world you know, with executives and, you know, streaming services and all of the producers that you have to come up against and fight for what you believe in uh, and compromise. You know, I, 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 I feel like I, I understand the story better. Um, but most of all, I, I just feel more confident in my ability as a director now, which I think is a huge part of it. I know how to, you know, for the last, uh, let's say seven, eight years, I've been running shows, you know, as a producing director. So that means that I start with, and I hire the directors. Usually I cast the cast. I work with the department heads. So I wasn't daunted by something this size. It's the first time I'm directing all of the episodes, you know, but, uh, which is a great opportunity. Um, but all of that figures into you know, the show that I made.
0: What was um, maybe the most difficult part about that? So imagine normally if you come on a show that's already been on the air, you can see what the look's gonna be. Like how did you start to think about that? What were some of the conversations with the cinematographer like to determine the real look of the show?
1: The conversation with the cinematographer started with sitting around my apartment and just going through these stacks of books and talking about the film, our favorite films, and the films that we thought were relevant. And we always approached this as, as a film. You know, we thought of it as a five hour movie and we shot it in that way, meaning from beginning to end, because it was one director and not multiple directors. You know, we would go to Halston's townhouse and shoot everything in the townhouse. Then we would go to the Olympic Tower set and shoot everything there, you know. Um, and our strategy as far as like uh, chipping away at the five hours was exactly like a movie, except we were, we were probably making, you know, it's the equivalent of making three features. Mm-hmm. Um, visually, we, we made a... A lookbook for ourselves and for the camera operators, um, you know, of the evolution of the look of the show and how we would depict that visually. Uh, we wanted to shoot a, a wide, wide format of two-one screen ratio. Uh, we wanted to use vintage lenses, and so we pulled images from lots of lots of films. Everything from you know, The Graduate, to Fassbinder, to American Gigolo, and and we, we sort of had to decide what we wanted it to look like, and I didn't, I knew I didn't want it to look like a pastiche. I didn't want it to look like, you know, you turned it on, and suddenly you were watching a, a movie from the 60s or 70s. I wanted to feel like you were there, that it had an intimate quality, and you were seeing it, you know, in a, in a way that wasn't mannered. Michael Bauhaus was uh, one of my mentors when I was at the Sundance program early on in my career when I made my first feature. And he was a remarkable cinematographer. He was Fassbinder's cinematographer. He was anywhere from from Fassbinder to Scorsese. And and, uh, something he said to me always stayed in my mind, which was, if you feel the hand of the director, or the hand of the cinematographer, you're not doing your job. You shouldn't feel, you know, uh, their presence. You know, so you, so so we kind of uh, stayed away from really showy, big you know, big shots. And I tried to take all of the inspiration for the camera movement from. characters themselves and it's interesting because Ewan is an actor who really loves to move Mm -hmm. and it started off in this very kinetic way and then by the end you know in the fifth hour he's you know you start the episode and he's sitting in a chair and he's sort of defeated and and in his cups and and it ends with him sitting on on a chair watching the ocean Mm -hmm. and being driven in the back of a car so it had this natural progression. He is a genius and, and, and really charted the whole thing effortlessly. He works completely on instinct. He thinks everything through, but he works completely on instinct. And I feel like I took a lot of my cues from him and from the other actors because I always like to come to set with a, something prepared mm-hmm. I have a plan just in case nobody else does. I have a plan, and I have an idea of how I want it to look, and usually how I want it to feel, for foremost in the f- first and foremost. And then they've all prepared something, and then you turn them loose in the set, and uh, you know, magic happens. I, that's my favorite part of things. I'd say, I'd say, six out of six or seven out of ten times, I, I throw away my planning and and we find something on set and that's that's very exciting
0: how do you balance that so you come in with a vision and a storyboard but you want to be open to spontaneity and collaboration is it just like i've got a north star in my head of what has to happen and this works within that or how do you kind of see those two kind of different worlds I think you recognize it right
1: away. You know, if I come in with a storyboard, it's usually because it's a very complex sequence. Like in the Versailles sequence, we were marrying four different locations. And in the theater, it was two locations, but it was important to me to know that we got all the shots. (laughs) You know, I needed all of the reaction shots from the audience, all of the stuff that looked into the stage, the stuff that looked out of the stage, the stuff of Halston and his entourage in their box. You know, but within that, you know, some beautiful stuff happened. The choreographer would come up with stuff. The, the person who, who organized all of the models, you know, and all of the, those sequences would come up with great stuff. And then we would kind of uh, swing with it. And that was exciting. So, you know, I can't, I can't really say what percentage of it changes for me. And it varies from, from, from project to project. Sometimes, you know, there, there are people who just say, tell me where to stand and where do you want me to go? And other people, um, are very, uh, independent and, and have a really clear idea and you follow them around and you kind of negotiate with them. Or in this case, you know, we all really trusted each other and, Mm -hmm. and, uh, got into a groove, you know, sort of like having a dance
0: partner. So I know this is a series, but you did shoot it like a movie. What are some of the benefits of working in television? I, I imagine you can shoot more pages per day because you're used to like schedules and that type of thing that are more intense. What are some of those other benefits? <clears throat> the the benefit of, of shooting it like a movie or the benefit of working
1: in television? Working in television. <clears throat> well, I'd say shooting more pages in the day is not necessarily a benefit for a director. It can be really taxing, and uh, you worry about losing things or dropping shots or or missing opportunities because you're moving quickly. Um, I'll tell you what the good the good part of it is that you know having a crew and actors who are used to working at the pace of television, Mm. you can feel confident that they'll be able to keep up and they'll be able to keep delivering and that they're constantly, um, hopefully they're constantly using their eyes and their instincts to tell the story in the most economical way. I think that's a good thing. I think that's a good thing for television or film, but, but the advantage of working with crews who and actors who have done that is that, uh, it's really alive, and they're very resourceful.
0: So you mentioned um, you've kind of you, you've changed some of the things you do on set as a director. Is there anything that comes to mind that you like? I wish I had never been told that advice or any bad advice you got early on in your career. You know, I didn't get bad advice. I, I I remember my very first job.
1: I was trying to find. A hotel lobby for a for a scene, and it was a final scene, and it wasn't a it wasn't a, a dialogue scene. It was a very poignant uh, tableau, and I was looking for a very particular kind of hotel lobby that you could see from the outside, and I wanted to, I wanted it to be evocative, and that you would feel, you know, this woman go into this place. She'd been thrown out of her house and she was estranged from her husband and the the locations person and the uh, line producer were in a van with me and we were scouting and they were getting frustrated and and the guy said to me, listen Dan, in television you aim for a hundred percent and you and you settle for 60 percent. And I never have settled for sixty percent. I and I found the perfect, you know, hotel motel lobby, and uh, that was that was bad advice. I didn't take it, but it was something that always stayed with me. Mm-hmm. That uh, a lot of people were willing to compromise, and uh, on the on,
0: their, uh, on the project
1: and the, and the quality of it. And I was not.
0: Mm. You think that was of the old era? Cause you know, TV used to be looked down upon more, but some of your first shows, I mean, The L Word, Six Feet Under, those were like already groundbreaking shows. Do you kind of see that natural progression?
1: Let's just say it was a, the, the person who said that was like uh, an old timer. Right. <laughs> And it, but it was like in a premium show. and I was not gonna let them down by settling for some bad location. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting over my career when I, you know, I'd, I had made two features. One I, when I co-wrote, the other, the other one I, I wrote and directed. And uh, when I started uh, working in series, you know, a lot of my director friends kind of poo-pooed it, and then, and then after a couple of years, everybody wanted in because it, it was where it was, at like people had more resources, they were telling really great stories, they were avoiding all of the the tropes and cliches of. Uh, that that people were forced into making features. And uh, so I have seen an evolution of that, you know, and when I started my career in the early, you know, 2000s, it really, you know, they call that the golden age of television or one of the golden ages of television, you know, when HBO is in its peak.
0: And uh, I was really lucky to, to have that opportunity. What made you see it differently and how did you kind of, it sounds like if if maybe less people were willing to make the transition at the time, that there was some open spots, but what made you like see that before other people you think? I'm not sure.
1: I, I guess like there were a lot of directors who I admired who had worked in series. I mean, Bergman made scenes from a marriage. You know, it was a a big, important series. Fassbinder made Berlin Alexander plots. Raul Ruiz even did like long form, you know, things. I think it was a, uh, I was always attracted to the writers and good writing was what, I was after so my first two jobs were Six Feet Under and Deadwood, and uh, and uh, you know so I got to work with Alan Ball and his team and David Milch and his team and I learned everything I know about you know working in series and and you know working on those shows I was just thrown into it and uh, and very uh, generously encouraged by the people on those shows.
0: Just do maybe one more and I'll, uh, it's kind of a, a two-parter. You can, you can pick one or, or do both. Um, if you were kind of starting today, how might you break into the business? And also how do you think about career longevity? It's interesting because I feel to break into the business, you need
1: to make something yourself and make something that has your imprint on it. I feel like people starting out today have a lot more opportunities because technology is so much more friendly. You can make things and and stream things much more easily than when I started when people were still shooting on film and the production apparatus was much larger and more complicated. You can also get things you know, like, like the women in Broad City. We're just streaming those, you know, on YouTube. Like they're amazing. And then they're given their own show. You know, I think there's a lot more competition now, but it's also, uh, it feels more wide open to me. And maybe that's my naivete, but I think, I think to make something that has your imprint on it and shows that you, uh, have something to say and that it has a, a, a strong narrative drive is the best way to to make a calling card and, and, and get work. I don't know what to say about career longevity I mean I know directors who you know worked into their 80s and hope mm-hmm. to be one of those people I, I I feel like I'm a really late bloomer I uh, had other careers before this. I worked as a journalist, and I and I um, spent a lot of time just uh, trying to find myself. And and so when I started in 2000, I was already in my 30s. And uh, now I feel like I'm finding my voice, and I feel like I have something to say. And hopefully, people are are interested.
0: Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.